welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction This omnibus edition covers all the skills of TALC Module 2, skills for building effective relationships. These skills are really important because personalised, kind, empathic care actually brings very big improvements into clinical outcomes. You get better pain relief, faster wound healing, relief of anxiety, and even formal outcomes like improved blood pressure can follow when clinicians have good relationships with their patients. It only takes about 40 seconds of your clinic time to get the benefits from expressing compassion, expressing empathy and being interested in your patient. The chapter, Be on the Same Page as Your Patient, which is about building rapport and trust, encourages dialogue and that in turn will mean more effective information gathering. The management plans will be more effective and a positive atmosphere will be created. In chapter two of this module, which is called How Does a Small Dose of Empathy Produce Much Better Outcomes? We explore the skills needed to name a patient's feelings. If this happens in a consultation, clinician-patient relationships can be improved with powerful effects on healing. In chapter three, Can You Go Beyond Flat Pack Empathy? and transform transactions into healing relationships, we think about things that make it reciprocal and positive in consultations so that your patients feel better more quickly and they're more able to respond to the things that you're suggesting. Finally, in Chapter 4, we talk about skills for diffusing angry situations. Patients' expectations and fears often lead to conflict if they're not shared by their clinicians, for example. People who are frightened get angry more easily. Good news is that there are specific consultation skills which will help you to reduce and manage conflict effectively. And these skills also mean taking care of your own human needs as well. This podcast concerns the module which is called TALC, Skills for Building Effective Relationships. And it's about the chapter called, Can We All Get on the Same Page? How to Deepen Rapport. Now, every consultation is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to create a relationship. And maintaining and building rapport builds a scaffold on which trust can develop between people. Initiating rapport occurs in the early stages of the consultation and this is covered in module one talc skills for beginning consultations in the chapter which is called why is rapport like money but deepening and maintaining rapport is a key skill to support effective consultations in all other areas if a good rapport is continuously built up This makes it easier for clinician and patient to develop a mutual understanding of the key issues. Good rapport enables trust, which means that patients share information. Rapport enables dialogue, which means that effective management plans can be negotiated and it creates a positive atmosphere in which patients are more likely to be able to focus on hope and healing. A good rapport makes for better alignment and cohesion between people which encourages the expression of kindness and compassion. and This greatly increases patient satisfaction. When patients are happier, actually clinicians are usually happier too. The skills for maintaining and deepening rapport are mainly concerned with showing the patient that you are attuned to their situation and to their worldview. Now attunement sounds a bit musical, doesn't it? And attunement is something like that. It's about being in the same key, about being tuned into the patient, about almost dancing together effectively. This creates a feeling of acceptance. Now, acceptance may not necessarily mean agreement or approval. It's rather about the person feeling recognised and understood. 
This is an essential preliminary for any communication or negotiation. The key skills relate to the use of mirroring and matching in a skillful way. Rapport is deepened when both parties can match their tone of voice, the type of language they use, the speed of their speech and their physical posture. This can work both ways. Following the patient's tone and mirroring their posture can aid rapport and build the relationship if those aspects are congruent. However, if the patient is angry and aggressive, mirroring them will fuel the fire and make things worse. In that case, the clinician can use matching and mirroring skills to encourage a change in the patient. If the clinician starts slowing their speech, speaking calmly and quietly, maintaining a quiet and relaxed posture, then the patient is likely to mirror the clinician too. In this way, it means that the understanding of mirroring can help to diffuse angry or difficult situations. When we're thinking about learning these skills, it can be helpful to look at videos of consultations, perhaps one of your own. Begin by focusing not on the content, but on the process of the consultation. Start to notice the degree to which both of the people in the consultation have the same tone of voice, perhaps quiet or angry, or the extent to which both people are using similar language. Is somebody using jargon or technical language? Is the patient using terms that are local to a particular region? And the extent to which people are speaking at a similar speed and pace, and how the posture is mirrored. It's worth looking at different parts of the consultation or at different consultations to see which ones, which aspects of this deepen rapport and make the relationship seem to develop more easily. It can be worth thinking about matching and mirroring in consultations after you've done this. In a group, it might be worthwhile having some practice of this by talking about something with a colleague while asking them to match it and mirror the speech that you're making. Afterwards, you can discuss and reflect on how matching and mirroring seems to improve rapport. The consultation is a complex process and building up skills bit by bit is an effective way to improve your consultation skills. It can be worthwhile focusing on the non-verbal skills of building rapport in a few consultations until these skills become automatic. This podcast concerns the module Skills for Building Relationships and it concerns the specific chapter called How Does a Small Dose of Empathy Produce Much Better Clinical Outcomes? Being able to express empathy effectively is crucial for building a good relationship between clinician and patient. We all experience empathy to a greater or lesser extent because it is one of the key factors that makes us human. However, being able to communicate empathically in a professional situation is a skill that needs to be developed through every clinician's career. Clinicians need to develop skills in empathic communication so that an effective relationship is built up with the patient. This has the result that all the other aspects of the consultation become more effective. This can save time because empathy helps both parties to feel understood, which means that patients do not spend a lot of time repeating themselves, which is a waste of time. Building a good relationship increases trust, which improves the effectiveness of information gathering. Developing a positive relationship between clinician and patient means that the negotiations of the explanation and planning phases of the consultation are likely to go more smoothly. The likelihood that the patient will act on a clinician's safety netting advice is also linked to how much they trust that clinician and to what extent they consider that the clinician has really understood the situation. Being able to communicate empathically is thus a key element in effective consultations. It's not just a nice add-on. Without a good relationship, without trust, the effectiveness of clinical work is reduced. There is now increasing and very compelling evidence 
that kindness, empathy and compassion have major benefits in healthcare. This is not just about patients having pleasant feelings or having a nice time. In hundreds of research papers, empathy and compassion have been shown to make substantial impacts, impacts on outcomes in healthcare. And these impacts are quite varied. They include physiological effects. Now, examples where empathic care affects physiology include improvements in blood sugar control in those with diabetes, reducing the impact of stress-mediated disease, lowering blood pressure, and modulating the perception of pain. In some situations, mortality has been reduced. Empathic perioperative care reduces the need for analgesia or sedation. And it's even been found in some instances that wounds heal more quickly with compassionate empathic care. There are obviously psychological benefits as well. There is compelling evidence that empathic care affects the quality of life and experience of disease states, for example in cancer. And it's now well recognised that loneliness has adverse effects on health, which can be mediated by appropriate interpersonal relationships. Expressing empathy, especially in response to subtle clues in the patient's behaviour, improves their mental health and can reduce depressive or anxiety symptoms. Increased empathy and compassion also enhance patient self-care. Non-adherence to treatment causes treatment failures and increases healthcare costs. When the relationship between clinician and patient include empathy and compassion, patients are more likely to stick to their treatment plans, more likely to make relevant lifestyle changes, and more likely to engage in positive social activities. The effect of empathy and compassion also affects providers and improves healthcare quality. When providers have empathy and compassion, they're more meticulous about their care and they work to higher quality standards. They're also much less likely to make major medical errors. This does also reduce healthcare costs. However, even more importantly, when staff are able to relate to patients as individuals and to feel that both parties are involved as people, the satisfaction and well-being of the clinicians increases. These well-researched positive effects have been termed compassionomics because of the far-reaching effects of empathy from clinicians. Well, how does this actually happen? Clinicians may wonder if all this will take more time in consultations, and this has also been subjected to extensive research. Essentially, quite short expressions of empathy and concern take about 30 to 40 seconds of consultation time, and this pays big dividends in reduced patients' anxiety and increased patient satisfaction. These effects could persist for up to six months after the consultation in some research studies. What actually happens in empathic communications then? Here are some examples to show what kinds of things the clinicians in the studies were saying and doing. A clinician might say, I appreciate that what you're going through is really hard at the moment. I will help as much as I can. Or they might say, I realise there's a lot of information here that might be not so easy to understand. We'll go through it together and I'd like you to stop me if something doesn't make sense. The key message is that responding to the patient as an individual and really hearing their experience is what counts. One study examined in detail how long it took for clinicians to recognise a compassion opportunity, as they called it, and to make an empathic response. Now, this could be just to notice the feeling, it could be to offer explicit support, or to follow up that response with a question to explore the patient's feelings further. It usually took around 30 seconds for this to happen. When inexperienced clinicians consult, they often attempt to be empathic using quite generic statements. For example, that must be difficult, or, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And on occasion, those kinds of generic statements can work fine. But empathy is much more powerful when it refers specifically to the person in question and to exactly what they've been saying. So compare these two statements. I'm just so worried about my examinations. I can't sleep, I can't eat, I can't work. 
I'm terrified about what will happen if I fail. What if the clinician says, well, that sounds difficult for you. Let's compare the same interaction. I'm just so worried about my examinations. I can't sleep, I can't eat, I can't work. I'm terrified about what will happen if I fail. Well, it sounds to me like the examinations worry has pervaded all the whole areas of your life. The latter statement is specific to this patient at this time, whereas the first one could be said to almost any patient in almost any predicament. Note that the empathic statement was preceded by the words it sounds to me like, this is important. Making an empathic statement requires us to put ourselves in the place of the other person, using information from all sources. This includes their words, their body language, their tone of voice, their clothing and their context. And from these, we can deduce what they're experiencing. This involves thinking processes as well as feeling and emotional processes. And sometimes we can get it wrong. If we use a qualifying phrase like, this sounds as if, or this sounds like, or even, I'm wondering if, before making an empathic statement, this allows the patient to disagree with us afterwards. They can then say something like, well, it, not exactly, it's more that this is happening. This empowers the patient to clarify their situation and it helps the clinician to really understand what's happening. Listening to someone means more than just hearing what they say and remembering it. Active listening often requires some kind of interpretation. The full meaning comes from an accumulation of information or several clues to the overall meaning. This is especially true when people talk about their emotions and feelings. People often don't name their feeling outright by saying something like, I really resent the way my boss makes me do overtime. Sometimes they do something a little bit more subtle and the clinician may have to work out what the feelings are. The patient might say something like, oh, every day it's the same. I'm getting ready to go and she turns up and says, oh, please, will you just do this? Or just do that before you go. Or I'm putting you on the overtime shift to cover until so-and-so gets here. I was late home every night last month. It's really getting me down. In this situation, the clinician can name the feeling that is being implied or expressed indirectly by listening carefully to what is said. Demonstrating empathy and showing that they've really heard, remembered and understood might suggest the interpretation saying something like, you sound rather angry and resentful towards your boss. When feelings are clearly named in this way, patients often experience great relief and comfort because somebody is really listening to them. Clearly, to make an accurate and empathic statement requires focused attention to what the patient is saying. The clinician has to have the ability to reflect on what the patient is saying, even as they're speaking, and to remember the content and the emotional tone. This is very difficult to do if the clinician spends their non-speaking time deciding what question to ask next, rather than listening to what the patient is saying right now. Clinicians who want to develop their empathy skills can first pay attention to their skills in naming the feelings that the patient is expressing. Let's think again about the examination that I mentioned earlier. It isn't always easy to tell what the patient is feeling. The clinician has to listen hard and interpret what the patient is saying. Then the clinician needs to demonstrate that understanding of the patient's feelings. In the example I quoted before, the clinician could go on to demonstrate their understanding by saying something like, I can really appreciate that this situation might, you feel, might make you feel pretty resentful towards your boss. Showing respect for the speaker's feelings and treating them with non-judgmental acceptance can be very healing for patients. Following this up with support, using positive words, encouragement and hope for improvement can help even further. If necessary, emotions can be explored in more detail, especially if patients are very distressed. In usual circumstances, a simple, accurate naming of the patient feeling will be greeted with, yeah, that's it, and the con consultation will then proceed more smoothly. Thank you.
Today I'm talking about the module Skills for Building Effective Relationships and in particular the chapter called Beyond Flat Pack Empathy, Transforming Transactions into Healing Relationships. Inexperienced clinicians who watch educators or training, trainers consulting often say things like, oh it's so much easier for you because you know the patient already. And they may even make comments like that when the educator is seeing a new patient. So what is it that the learner is observing that is so significant? How come educators or experienced clinicians make it seem easy? When consultation skills get beyond basic competence, a very important qualitative change occurs. The use of higher level skills enables consultations to change from transactions into human relationships. And the result is the consultation truly becomes a meeting between experts. The patient brings their expert knowledge of themselves and their life, while the clinician offers their expertise in healthcare. The relationship that's built makes for easier communication and the whole thing seems to flow more effectively. Experienced clinicians, generalists in particular, can develop an effective relationship with patients very quickly. They use rapport building skills, active listening skills and relationship building skills to do this. When a clinician takes a patient's thoughts, concerns and proposals for action into account, trust will develop. One way to enhance the effectiveness of this clinician-patient relationship is through the use of higher order empathy skills. This chapter explores how there is a continuum in both the specificity and the intensity of the effects of different kinds of expressions of empathy. Initially, empathy can be thought of as the flat pack, one size fits all type of empathy. This is expressed in empathic statements that are generic and can even seem formulaic. This type of empathy is generalised and the phrases that are used could be applied to a variety of different circumstances. This kind of empathy can be a good starting point in a conversation, sometimes enabling the conversation to turn away from symptoms to an exploration of the effects of the symptoms perhaps. But developing skills in expressing empathy further will result in something that a group of doctors working in the Northwest called bespoke empathy. This is where the empathic comment indicates precise listening to the actual situation of the speaker. As relationships building skills develop further, a therapeutic alliance forms between the clinician and the patient to the extent that the clinician can use something which I call therapeutic empathy, which also expresses values and aspirations. And this can help the patient to see new possibilities in their own narrative. Here are some examples to make the concepts clearer. Now, let's imagine the patient makes a statement like this. I went to the clinic expecting the all clear yesterday, but I felt terrible since because the oncologist told me that the tumour spread so much I can't have any more chemo. Now, a flat pack empathy response might be to say, I'm sorry to hear that. This may be a good start. However, the skilled clinician will explore the patient's responses further. And this might lead to perhaps some bespoke empathy along the lines of, it sounds like you've been hoping for some good news so you must have felt pretty deflated and let down after the clinic. If the clinician is accurate, the patient will endorse that by saying something like, well, that's right, or exactly. Or they might say, well, I did, but I also felt a bit cross because I thought they'd promised me some more chemo. Being understood, the patient will usually be able to expand on what is concerning them. And this will help the clinician to understand the patient's predicament more fully building the relationship and helping to move the consultation forwards. A therapeutic empathic response might go even further. So when the patient describes being told they've got no more chemotherapy in prospect, therapeutic empathy might be expressed by saying something like, you've coped with so much already. 
Now you're facing a very challenging time in your life. This endorses the patient's fortitude, you've coped with so much, but the past tense changes to the present tense and turns to the future. Now you're facing a challenging time. This enables the focus to move to what lies ahead and the conversation might move more easily to explore what really matters to the patient now. Here is another example. What if somebody says, my old dog died last week after 10 years of being part of the family? Flat pack empathy could say something like, I'm sorry to hear that, which can be used for almost any difficult circumstance and that's why it can sound formulaic or a bit insincere sometimes. Bespoke empathy might be something like, so you're really missing a family member now? That picks up the clue about part of the family. Therapeutic empathy might go a little further. How sad to lose your dog who gave you so much for so long. This takes the conversation from sadness and loss to include gratitude, happy memories and perhaps even an implicit recognition that all things must pass. This kind of empathy builds the relationship with support and even hope for the future. That kind of relationship is called a therapeutic alliance. A therapeutic alliance or therapeutic relationship has been repeatedly shown to be the crucial element in any kind of mental health work and is, it's important when caring for people in any healthcare context. It can be thought of as having three elements. First of all, agreement on the goals of the meeting between the two parties, which might include diagnosis, which takes into account the ideas, concerns and expectations of the patient, or it might be about follow-up or a specific aspect of care. There needs to be some kind of agreement about what's going to happen next. And most importantly, there is the development of a personal bond made up of reciprocal positive feeling. There's an excellent description of the effectiveness of increased empathy in Barry Bubb's book, which is called Communication Skills That Heal. Therapeutic relationships become even more effective over time when there is continuity of care. Continuity is a kind of proxy for a developing relationship and has been repeatedly shown to have highly beneficial effects on clinical outcomes. Perhaps even just as important is that continuity improves the experience both of patients and the clinicians who work with them. So when we express empathy skillfully, effective relationships develop, even during isolated clinical encounters. Consultations become more satisfying and less stressful for clinicians. This must be a strong motivation to develop, to develop the relevant skills. These advanced empathy building skills go on from those that are talked about in skills for beginning consultations effectively, how to build and deepen rapport, and how does a small dose of empathy produce much better clinical outcomes. In this podcast, I'm talking about the module Skills for Building Relationships. And in this chapter, I'm talking about a difficult situation. In other words, how can you diffuse an angry situation gracefully? All clinicians have to deal with angry patients sometimes. Patients may reserve their worst behaviour for the administration staff and have sometimes calmed down by the time they get to see an actual clinician. But on other occasions, patients vent their anger about delays or other problems in their care during a consultation. This means that all clinicians need some basic skills in being able to deal calmly with an angry person, diffusing the situation so that things can proceed towards attending to the patient's needs. Part of this skill lies in not taking the anger of someone else personally. Most of the reasons that underlie angry exchanges in healthcare situations are not directly about the individual health personnel involved. Anger can be brought into the room because of things going on in the patient's own life, or because of external factors like transport issues, or because the patient is frightened by things they perceive as threatening to their well-being or to their safety. 
Anger is a natural response to the distressing facts of pain, suffering, disease and death, as well as to the disappointment that can occur when, despite the best efforts of clinicians, an illness worsens or death threatens. We cannot relieve all suffering that we encounter, nor can we postpone death indefinitely. Clinicians accept these facts before many patients are able to do so. Clinicians may take one of several initial responses to an angry patient. They may simply try to ignore the anger, getting on with normal questions and explanations without exploring the anger further. This may mean that the patient feels disregarded, which is not helpful for clinical care. Secondly, clinicians may try to placate the angry person, agreeing with everything they say, or taking unnecessary responsibility for things which are in fact outside the clinician's control. Finally, of course, the clinician may start arguing with the patient, becoming infected by the anger and getting furious themselves. This is obviously rarely helpful and usually escalates conflict. We should note that exactly the same principles apply when we're dealing with angry colleagues. An approach based on empathy and understanding will almost always be more productive. The approach to an angry exchange described in this chapter focuses on the well-being of both parties and allows the clinician to remain present and helpful while detached enough to avoid taking the anger too personally. Anger is very catching, like anxiety is very catching. An angry patient who stalks into the room can make the clinician feel upset, tense or angry even before the patient actually says anything. The clinician needs to have enough self-awareness to recognise this happening and to realise that they themselves are not the angry party. This can help clinicians to remain calm. There is an analogy from a Buddhist verse which shows the risks of taking anger personally. The story goes something like this. What would you do if somebody threw a red hot ball of iron at you or a pile of smelly excreta? These things are like the anger someone sends your way. It is better not to catch the red hot metal nor pick up the excreta. Stand aside to let them fall. Obviously, that's sometimes easier said than done. After the missile has been sent and landed on the ground, it is then easier to look at it from a safe distance and to work out what needs to happen next. If the clinician knows that they're expecting to see an angry person, they should first ensure that the room layout is safe. For example, make sure there's a clear route to the door. If there's any concern about safety or about whether the person coming to see you is intoxicated or armed, Colleagues should be alerted and they should remain accessible nearby. A joint consultation with a colleague present could be considered, although care should be taken to assess whether this will simply inflame things further. Clinicians should know how to access panic buttons or other safety measures, although I would emphasise that these things are hardly ever required in primary care settings. A useful way of thinking about what to do once the conversation has started is something called the breathe approach. Breathe is a mnemonic which helps us to remind, helps to remind us of what to do and includes paying attention to the clinician's needs as well as to the patient's needs. B is for breathe and this should be the clinician's first action. Breathing calmly is grounding and also enables a pause for thought, which is almost always helpful in any tricky or angry situation. Paying attention to your breath creates a pause in which you can also note the support around you. This might be the floor, firm support of the chair or the floor, or the potential support of other colleagues close by. It's also an opportunity for clinicians to remind themselves that they are the professionals in the situation and that they have many skills which can help to diffuse the situation. The next letter of breathe is R and R reminds us to remember the humanity of everyone involved. When things are tense and angry, it can be easy to end up thinking only of one's own needs and wants and how unpleasant it is to be shouted at. 
Instead, be curious about the other person. What's going on for them? Ask the angry person to tell you more about what has made them angry, using active listening skills to indicate that you have understood and expressing empathy for their predicament. Being curious makes you less likely to behave in an angry or stressed way yourself and can make you less fearful. Be explicit as the clinician that you are keen to understand what has happened that has made them so angry. This will reduce your own adrenaline response, which makes it easier to make good decisions about how to respond. Showing empathy for how the person is feeling, using a soft and kindly tone of voice, speaking a little more slowly than they are, can help to demonstrate that you are interested in them as a person. Showing interest in their difficulty and what is happening to them from their point of view tends to calm things down. Most people do not remain angry for long if they're taken seriously. Use active listening skills to paraphrase and reflect back what the patient or person is saying so that they know clearly that they have been understood and taken seriously. The next letter in breathe is E. E is for empathise with what the angry person is saying to you. The clinician needs to listen, showing that the reality as the angry person sees it is accepted, even if it is not what the clinician is seeing. Empathy must become before explanations. And this means exploring the situation as the other person is experiencing it. The next letter in breathe is A. And A stands for asking first. What do they need from the situation now? Ask something like, what would you like me to do now to help the situation? Before embarking on any explanations or alternatives, which may simply fuel your disagreement. Ask if the other person is willing to hear a bit about what you have to say, or are they perhaps willing to hear about some suggestions, some possibilities, or some possible ways forward. When the patient expresses a willingness to hear some ideas about what could happen next, then is the time to make suggestions or give explanations. Pause regularly to ask for the other person's responses and thoughts and use these to guide what could happen next. Breathe ends with TH, th. This stands for feeling the ground. It helps to stay in contact with everything that is supporting you, the floor, the walls around, the presence of colleagues nearby, the options that you have to offer, the skills that you've acquired. All the relationship building skills and active listening skills outlined in the TARP materials will come in useful with angry encounters. Particularly, think about the skills in effective relationship building and skills for effective information gathering. Particularly, can reading between the lines make for a more accurate diagnosis and what difference does a patient's thoughts, concerns and hopes really make? The clinician will usually find that a calm and methodical breathe approach will help to settle the discussion into a more productive direction. However, it is important for clinicians to remain alert to signs that this is not happening as expected. This could indicate an abnormal state of mind in the patient who might be psychotic and therefore extremely fearful and frightened, for example. Similarly, it may become apparent that the patient is intoxicated or has a weapon. In those circumstances, the clinician should calmly leave the room and get help from other people. Paradoxically, patients may report very good levels of satisfaction after what has seemed to a clinician to be a tense, angry or difficult encounter. This can be because when conflicts of opinion have been aired openly and respectfully listened to, even if the clinician and patient disagree, the patient feels more attended to. The process of being properly listened to and concerns taken on board actually makes for a more effective relationship overall, even if there are some angry or tense moments to deal with. Reading the materials in this chapter will help you to find some ways to practice these skills in encounters away from patients and it's well worth doing this. Simulations, such as the ones we do for CPR, are really good ways to learn some skills.
Welcome to this TALP talk, which is part of TALP module 2.6, Kindness, Consent and Communication. How to make physical examinations comfortable, useful and time efficient. Hi, I'm Julian Tomkinson, a GP and medical educator from Manchester, and I'm joined today by Anne. Hi, I'm Anne Thomas, and I'm also a GP and an educator in Manchester. It's good to be here with you today. Yeah, nice to see you. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about the examination. And I suppose many people consider that the examination is the most technical part of the consultation, and that the key thing is to know how to perform the physical examination skillfully and accurately. And obviously this is absolutely true, but Anne, could you share your thoughts about the importance of the consultation skills in and around the examination? Yeah, I absolutely agree that the technical skills you need are really important, but I'd also add that actually an effective examination requires intense and practiced consultation skills. If communicated or done badly, an examination can actually be really unpleasant so a clinician's role is to put people at their ease and to build trust. Okay, that's really interesting. So tell me a bit more about that. Well, if done well, then a practitioner uses skills of rapport and relationship building, and this helps to make an examination more comfortable and, and more effective. I think for lots of people, examinations can be quite daunting, even scary, and I suppose it's really difficult for anyone to understand the specific instructions that we might give as clinicians before or during examination if they feel worried or if they're feeling really anxious. And from our point of view, I suppose it's really hard to do something effectively, like, for example, a good examination of the abdomen, if someone is really tense, because it just makes it more difficult. I suppose at worst, examinations which are done clumsily or have not been explained effectively can lead to complaints. So... With all that in mind, it's quite interesting that very few of the consultation skills models contain specific reference to the examination, which obviously forms part of lots of the consultations that we do. So there's quite a lot to consider here. It might be helpful to think about this systematically. So Julian, what kinds of things need to happen before the examination to make it the most effective? It's actually interesting you said what needs to happen before, because when we've when we've thought about the communication involved in the examination and we've, we've done some teaching sessions on it, it becomes quite clear there are, there are three stages to the communication involved in the examination and that, they kind of revolve around the phase before the examination takes place. There's a great deal of communication that needs to happen well during the examination and then there's communication and maybe the explanation of the findings which happens after the ex examination. Okay so I think that's helpful because it allows us to focus on the different skills that we may need for each part of the consultation. Tell me more about what communication might be needed before an examination. I suppose the first thing is is just to explain that you want to do an examination and explain why that might be or why you've chosen a particular examination. One of the skills here is to actually clock the patient's face or just pick up on any vibes that an examination might not be appropriate at this time or it, there's a shock and that might need exploring further. There needs to be some kind of communication about what kind of examination is taking place and maybe what's going to happen in that examination. And it's just worth thinking about as doctors and clinicians, it's really easy to, to forget that you know, when you, I, I remember vividly at, at, at medical school having my blood pressure done for the first time and my uh, clinical colleague who's now a consultant anaesthetist uh, pumped the, the bulb up to 300 millimetres of mercury and it felt like my arm was going to go up, uh, drop off and it was really, really uncomfortable. And actually, I felt that was quite shocking. So it's it's... Just remembering that patients might not have had an examination done before and actually are, are they, do they need a little bit of explanation about what's going to take place and what to expect. Some examinations are particularly uncomfortable and we can talk about those in a bit more detail later. A really easy question here is, have you had this done before? Yeah, it's easy to forget that actually examinations that seem straightforward or everyday to us 
it might be very unusual or a first encounter for patients. So what else can help explain perhaps why an examination is taking place? It can be really useful to try and use some of the information that you've learnt already in the consultation to help improve the communication about the examination that you're doing. So it may be a, a simple comment like, it sounds like we're really worried about that rash, let's have a look. Or I can hear you really worried that that pneumonia might have come back and let's have a really thorough listen to your chest. Sometimes the examinations that we need to do aren't as obvious to the patient as, as they seem to us. So I'm thinking of examples like, I, I guess somebody who's got a really severe back pain, we might want to check for anal tone. Or somebody who is vomiting blood, we may want to consider a, a rectal examination. And those examinations may come out of nowhere and be quite a shock to the patient. So it may be that we really need to take the information that we've learned and do some explanation about more specifically why we want to examine a particular area of, of the patient's body. I suppose here Anne, we're talking about we're starting to talk about getting consent to do examinations. What are your thoughts about, about this? Well, it helps to be clear that you're seeking permission. A lot of people expect to be examined when they see a clinician. And the bit that we've already discussed in detail about being clear about what is proposed in the examination and why it's being done, well, that then leads to an agreement about what's going to happen next. I guess some examinations are just more awkward for for patients and, and probably clinicians as well, very often. Um, what are your thoughts about that, Anne? So we've discussed that how in... All examinations, it's really important to explain what kind of examination they're proposing and why. And in more intimate examinations, the clinician might need to discuss some other things. So, for example, whether a chaperone might be present and if they are who they are and what their role is. I suppose what clothes they might need to remove or where to position themselves or lie on a on an examination couch what the sequence of the examination might be, all these details um, may be necessary to help with the examination. So that's, that's interesting that you brought up the, the concept of chaperones here. And I know we work together and, and feedback we've got from our trainee clinicians is that often this is, can be a really difficult area to broach. Yeah, that's some common feedback that we've gotten over the years. I've wondered if it's the word chaperone because I'm not sure that every person understands what this really means or what the role of a chaperone is in an examination or consultation. Um, so using simple language can really help clarify this when offering a chaperone. So I think everyone will be different in the language that you use and it will depend on you and your circumstances but I usually say something along the lines of frequently patients feel more comfortable with a chaperone present which is someone else from the surgery he'll be present during the examination and this doesn't normally receive too many puzzled looks but if it does then it's important to pick up on that and I'll usually finish that sort of statement with a, a question such as what are your thoughts and sometimes people will ask questions about that particularly if it's something unusual or different for them and that's fine and then that's a really good opportunity to explore their thoughts around this and offer any clarification or Put people at ease. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I, I really agree about the word chaperone itself. Um, I mean, my funniest example of that was a, a patient thought a chaperone was a pizza topping. I mean, it sounds funny, but it just shows you how we, we assume that the words that we use day to day are understood by people, and, and they're very often not. I actually find that having a chaperone in the room with me can really help both with the practical elements of, of an examination, but often just makes me feel more confident about doing a, an awkward or intimate examination. I suppose here we should talk about what are the factors that make patients more apprehensive about ex certain examinations or examinations in, in general. Yeah, so a really important question. Previous traumatic or troubling experiences can strongly influence thoughts and feelings about being examined. For women who've experienced sexual abuse at some time, 
a careless examination could feel very intrusive, even threatening. So seeking consent, explaining the procedure carefully and really remaining vigilant for any clues that an examination is not welcomed, it's just so important. If you do pick up clues that someone seems more worried or more concerned about an examination that you're proposing, then directly asking them what's worrying them or what's on their mind could make them feel more comfortable during the examination and ease some of these apprehensions and even allow the examinations to go ahead in situations where maybe they couldn't. These are really important communication skills and you've started to bring in some of the communication or the consultation skills that are happening during an examination there where you're checking that somebody's happy to proceed with a with an examination. So before we move on to talk about the skills needed during the examination, there's a couple of areas we should just pick up on. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Julian, when you were given an example about explaining what and why you were doing in the examination, you used the phrase, um, I'd like to do a thorough examination of your chest. So I just wanted to ask a bit about your choice of language. Tell me about that. Yeah, thanks for noticing that earlier. <laughs> um, yeah, this, I suppose this was something that, to be honest, I'd never really gave this any thought until a few years back. Um, and I heard myself saying, let me just have a quick listen to your chest or let me have a quick look at that. And actually, I don't know, some teaching I attended that pointed out that that was quite a negative or in fact an accurate description of what I was going to do and um, I mean I've talked about this with people many times since and I think often it's a a representation of maybe feeling in a rush ourselves or actually not wanting to inconvenience the patient or embarrass the patient so I'm going to make it quick but actually that being all very nice really want to convey the message that you're going to do a a, a good examination or a, a thorough or detailed examination. So I found I had to practice these skills and actually really tried hard to remove the word quick from describing my examinations and replacing it with with the word good. They're such small things, aren't they, that maybe clinicians don't consider, but those small words can make a huge difference. And actually using phrases like a thorough examination or a really good look, that that reflects what you do, but it, it also helps build trust and it really enhances and improves your credibility and but it's just the truth isn't it so you may as well represent what you're actually doing I think that's right and it actually changes the way we feel about ourselves as well I think that, that's really important because we do we are doing a good job and we are doing a good examination and we are being thorough very often and just by saying those words can just exact it just builds on our on the way we feel I suppose occasionally patients say no to being examined what do you do if that happens? Well, rather than... I mean, there's lots of reasons out there why this might be the case, but rather than just saying, OK, it's best to explore why. What what thoughts are they having about it? What concerns or what worries? What are they fearing it might be like? And then taking some time to address those concerns. Another thing about doing any examination, but particularly intimate examinations, is to be clear about minimising interruptions, for example, closing and locking the door, um, closing curtains, you know, being clear that nobody's going to blunder in. These are really important things to consider, aren't they? And and being confident that somebody's not going to blunder into your room or interrupt you or, or you're going to find yourself exposed is, is a really important thing for patients to understand and feel safe about. So we've talked about the communication skills, the consultation skills in, involved before we start an examination there. And you, you started to allude to some of the skills that are needed during the examination on. Yeah, I think we'd started to think about um, the permission needed for examinations. And whilst we're thinking about the consultation skills we need during the examination, then we're seeking continued permission for exams, aren't we? So that is continually picking up on those cues or those clues that we mentioned um, to try and understand whether you've got continued permission for examination to continue. So this might be the old classic 
of looking at patients. I remember a surgical consultant many, many years ago insisting that we look directly into everybody's eyes as we examine their abdomen. But he was right that actually if you were doing an examination that's uncomfortable either physically or emotionally for somebody, then you need to be really aware of the clues that that's the case. But also listening. Sometimes people will directly ask us to stop, so we need to make it clear that that's okay and that we're seeking permission throughout the examination. These are these are such valid points, and and those old pearls of wisdom, they were they were made for a reason, weren't they? About you know looking at patients and and responding to how they are. I guess sometimes people will will say, "Can you stop?" And I think it's really it's, it's really important to to respect that. But I suppose there are some situations where clinically, and I'm thinking maybe of an acute abdomen here, where a certain examination needs to be maybe uncomfortable, but it's it's really important clinically. And again, the key things here are acknowledging those issues, explaining why we as, as a clinician would, would prefer to carry on and trying to then move on with, with permission, with consent. Obviously stopping if, if it's not, if that permission is not granted. Um, so we've discussed picking up on cues and clues there, listening, observing patients, and even started to talk about negotiation here. What other skills are needed during the examination, Anne? So if we've used effective skills before the consultation, then we'd be hopeful that patients would know what to expect during the examination. But it may be that we've got specific instructions that we need to give to do an effective examination. So if, it, if this is the case, then being really specific and clear with instructions, and I'm thinking about maybe having to move into a particular position, um, having to move on the couch or to remove a piece of clothing, being really specific and being clear about what's needed can be really helpful. We've talked a lot about the skills of preparing for the examination and communicating during the examination and I suppose we're now at the bit where we have to think about how we actually share our findings, what we found during the examination. So and what what issues do we need to consider here? I think it is very individual so it may well depend on who we're examining, the purpose of the examination, maybe the, the findings from the examination. So there's not really a one-size-fits-all approach. I suppose I'm thinking that often clinicians, when examining a child, for example, will provide a sort of running commentary for the parents' benefit, mostly, of the sort of normal findings, perhaps linked to a parental concern. And that's that's usual and fairly easy to do, and particularly easy if the findings are normal and can be really useful in allaying parental fears as you go. And that can be really time efficient in communicating normal examination findings if there's a lot to do. If there are abnormal findings during examination, then whilst the clinician is undertaking the examination, then they might use this time to maybe gather their own thoughts about what these abnormal findings may mean. And they may not communicate them during the examination but take some time afterwards to process that and think about how best to communicate that to the individual patient. Yeah I agree with what you've said and I suppose again this was a, an area that I became I became conscious of one day actually and I can remember where I was stood and a patient had come in worried about their chest quite significantly worried about an issue with the chest and I, I hadn't I'd listened to the chest thoroughly but I hadn't made any comments about the chest at that time, which, and I, I hadn't found anything abnormal. And I'd gone off to wash my hands and said, get yourself, just get yourself ready and we'll sit down and have a, a talk about the results. And I, I just was washing my hands thinking about what to do next. And it was probably a good minute between examining the, the patient's chest and actually saying your chest was fine. And that, that really struck me that I hadn't responded to that patient's needs in that consultation and they looked really relieved and that was such an easy thing to do. I guess if if it had if the examination had revealed something more sinister, then you know that, that time would have been needed, but the time I spent was unnecessary and, and could have put the, the patient at ease much quick much more quickly. 
So that's really something about using the information that you've gathered in the first part of the consultation to inform perhaps the level of worry or anxiety around a particular symptom or the examination and delivering your findings in a in a uh, appropriate way. That's why we often uh, tell worried parents as we go along because we're relieving their anxiety as we go and that's why they're there and that's how we can help. Absolutely and it, it's really interesting actually when you talk to the, the people that you see, the patients that you see and often their concerns are or their expectations even revolve around the examination so they'll have a um, a concern about a particular thing and their expectation is that they need an examination to rule in or out that thing and actually that's the reason that they're there with you and and the findings of your examination are are actually the whole crux of the consultation and th- this is pretty common and and I think we often underestimate how how powerful the moment is when you you're undertaking an examination in a patient's mind so and We've just talked about how important this area is. What other tips have you got for explaining examination findings? Well, we explored the skills of explanation in TALC Module 4, where we go into much detail about all the skills that are required, but it's worth recapping some important aspects here. So linking your findings to a person's worries or hopes or expectations for the consultation is just so important. But it's really important that with examination findings that you have, this may well change somebody's ideas and concerns and expectations. It's clearly really important to gauge prior knowledge of the conditions you might be discussing or the findings that you have, and also to try and use the right amount of detail in your explanations. On the whole, if findings are normal, then using positive language to reinforce the fact that things are normal can be really helpful. So I often will say, you know, that uh, I've examined your heart and thankfully the heart seems healthy rather than saying, um, you know, it's uh, there's nothing wrong or what we can't find, but actually saying everything points towards a healthy whatever it might be. Yeah, that's that's really interesting stuff. And and, I mean, I guess, how do you how do we actually know that people have understood what we've explained? So using the skills of chunking and checking, so giving a small amount of information and then checking in with the patient, checking their response. So I've had a really good listen to your heart and chest and everything there sounds normal. So now I'm wondering what you're thinking now. So we spoke earlier about the importance of of language here and just tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, we discussed the language we use when we're planning examinations and that using clear unequivocal language makes your message clear so that is also important now without labouring the point which I feel that maybe we are but I think it's really important that I suppose contrast me saying I've listened to your heart and all seems healthy compared to I've listened to your heart and I can't really find anything wrong and what message that gives to the patient so I've really changed how I use this really positive language to reinforce the normal findings that's really valuable. There's some really valuable tips there, and I think you can you can also make things really sophisticated by linking it to those concerns. So, I suppose earlier on we talked about a patient who had maybe some worries about pneumonia, and you could say to them, "So I've had to listen to your chest, and everything is normal." And um, you could com- contrast that with you mentioned how worried about the pneumonia coming back again and and the examination of your chest today is normal and there are no signs of any pneumonia at all. This sounds clear and you've addressed that particular concern from earlier in the consultation. So what do you do next? What I found really effective at this point is, is, is to say what questions do you have now or what do you want to know now? I really found that people's thoughts and worries may be eased or worsened or just different after the findings are shared and so a simple kind of where are you up to now question like what do you want to know now works really well here yeah it's it's easy to go down a rabbit hole here is isn't it of explaining a load of 
um, findings from your examination that really the patient isn't really that interested in at all. So that sounds like a really direct way of, of finding out what's on their mind and, and moving the consultation on in, in an effective way. It seems really that explaining findings clearly, whether they're normal or abnormal, and chunking and checking can help our clinical reasoning too. As you work through your hypothesis, then your examination is testing that, and then you have more information to go on, and the patient's responses will also help you to decide about what to talk about or what to do next. So how much detail do you think we need to go into? Yeah, there's nothing more tedious than listening to a long list of normal findings that uh, somebody's not interested in. Um, I'd be guided by the patient. As we said before, it's really crucial to link explanations to the patient's thoughts and concerns. So that will tend to influence the kind of details and the level of detail um, that you would give in your examination. A good summary which encapsulates your findings from the first part of the consultation and links it um, perhaps to move the consultation forward is really helpful at this part of the consultation too. As you mentioned earlier that the module four essential skills for effective explanations and planning of personalised care has lots of great tips um, about using the skills you've been describing here. You just talked about summarising Anne. And the first chapter in module one, why are effective summarising skills the engine of the consultation is, is, a, is a really useful chapter to, to look through. And, and many of the concepts there apply to the examination. So speaking of summaries, uh, I think this conversation's shown there's, there are many, many, many skills involved in the communication of the examination. I find it really helpful to think about the before, during and after sections of the consultation around the examination uh, and over the years that's really helped me develop my own skills in this area. I'm really passionate about consultation skills and I know, know you are Anne. I've really enjoyed today's discussion and I think it's really highlighted to me that effective consultation skills lead to thorough and meaningful examinations and ultimately let us look after our patients in a kind and careful way. There'll be further written material available in Module 2, Chapter 6. I, I really hope that the conversation has been thought-provoking. I know Anne and I have talked about this this um, section of the consultation many times and, and found it's really helped our practice and we really hope our discussion will, will help you too. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, Anne. Really enjoyed that conversation. Until next time. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.